0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel!
1: Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospel Narrative. This is Gospels Part 62, Last week we saw that the Pharisees and Sadducees were asking Jesus to give them a sign to show that he had come from heaven, and his response was very unique in saying that he wasn't going to give a sign other than um, the sign of Jonah, and a lot of people, not that the interpretation is bad concerning the resurrection, but... um, more so of Jonah's story on how God's narrative went to a pagan Gentile nation and they repented, um, and that the call was the same to the chosen people, the covenantal people, the Jewish people, and, and to see that dichotomy to be like, man, if these Gentile people are repenting when they hear the message of God, like, how much more so should you be repenting right now? Yeah. And then we moved on from there, they got back into the boat uh, and were leaving, and Jesus is warning his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and so you and I were really wrestling this tension of how the disciples responded seemingly in a more literal sense after everything that's happened with feeding of the multitudes (laughs) all the miraculous things that have happened and jesus was very critical of them um about their faith and not kind of being up to speed but then trying to have some empathy towards the disciples too at how crazy all this must feel in the moment um and just trying to to balance that out i guess
0: yeah, and and we've seen it. Was, there was also we've got a couple little stories from Mark where he throws in a bunch of extra detail. At least makes us notice those stories. And we even talked about how maybe those also were like real life examples, trying to get the disciples to see when they're not seeing clearly, not mm. not uh, listening clearly, all that. So yeah, the whole thing. It's uh, it's very interesting section. And I, well, I mean, it it's. It's going to culminate in some sense now, so this should be a pretty cool episode. You ready for me to take off? Do it to it, laws. All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, uh, and this is the same as Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. We're going to go ahead and read from Matthew. It says this, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, that doesn't seem so bad. What could we have in here? First of all, Samuel, notice we just went to Caesarea Philippi. I hope you were wearing your neck brace because we are (laughs) moving quickly all around, right? Uh, Just kind of give you an idea, Caesarea Philippi, it's a a little bit to the north of Galilee. It's probably a little bit to the east. It's in the, the vicinity of Mount Hermon. I don't know, you've probably heard the name somewhere before. If if we were in Capernaum, it's probably in that 20 to 30 mile range, wherever it was they were, uh, and maybe it wasn't quite so far because the last story that we saw, they were in Bethsaida, which is, I mean, at least a little closer. I don't know. But this is a pretty significant trip. It's outside their normal stomping grounds. And again, I don't think they were actually in the city of Caesarea Philippi. That would have probably have been a little uncomfortable for them. Very, very pagan there. But, the, you know, they're in the district, the surrounding villages. And now Luke says it differently. He doesn't even tell us where they are. He just says, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. I don't know about you. That sounds like that's impossible. He's either alone or they're with him. Pick one. (laughs) But, you know, ignoring that fact, just because it doesn't make any sense to us, you know, if we weren't being quite so picky, but we, you know, you, you get the idea. You know what's going on. He was in a time of prayer, whatever. Now, the thing is, what we see in all of this, they're, they're, obviously we're in the middle of another attempt to be alone, escape the crowd, spend some time with the disciples. I, I can only imagine it's for teaching, and instruction, etc. And that's kind of cool because we just talked about how, yeah, and we've just seen a series of stories where Jesus was, you know, kind of getting on them a little bit because they, really, they weren't really getting with the program. So this this is kind of good. He takes them away so they can they can learn some more. And it's interesting. At some point along the way, presumably, Jesus wants to know what is really going on in the minds of the disciples. And so he starts with the the, the more general question Who do the people say that I am? And of course, the answers, we've actually seen this. It's kind of a recurring theme, even. The possibilities are John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Matthew even adds Jeremiah in here, which is kind of interesting. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who instructed Israel how to live in exile. Now, that would be anachronistic at this point, but it is looking in hindsight. That's kind of an interesting inclusion. But here's the thing. Jesus, I think it's fair to say that he had pretty consistently or continually, whatever, he had confused everyone. In in so many different ways, he was like the Messiah they expected, and yet, at the same time, in so many ways, he was not. And so, he also has never just stated it outright. There, There have been many, many hints and suggestions, maybe coded phrases, but there's always just a little room for doubt. But anyway, in their conversation, Jesus kind of gets the answer he's expecting, and so then he pushes it just a little further. Okay, who do you say that I am? And, I mean, to be fair, this is another great moment for Peter, right? He's consistently standing out as the leader of the group, the spokesman for the group, and he lays it out as plainly as he can. You are the Messiah the Christ. Peter, I mean, he believes it, and more than that, I think he just knows it. It's a done deal. And I don't know. We don't know. It doesn't tell us anything about the other guys, but it's probably fair to imagine that the others, they're either coming to the same conclusion or they're they are heading in that direction or whatever, because they're all hanging out together. Again, remembering back, we've we've covered the idea of the difficulty, uh, the the difficult healing of the deaf man. And we talked about that symbolizing the deafness of the disciples. The disciples' lack of understanding, like phrases like, do your eyes not see, do your ears not hear. We had the difficult healing of the blind man, which we talked about potentially symbolizing the blindness of the disciples. All these stories lead us to who do you say that I am, and sort of like a surprising turn of events, Peter shows up and he's got like seeing eyes and hearing ears he 's like you're the christ you're the, you're the son of the living god i mean this is this is kind of a big moment, well at least sort of I mean Samuel, all along the way, all of these stories that we've been doing have we run across? Anyone who kind of seemed to, you know, maybe think that Jesus was the Messiah? Kind of get that vibe here and there. Yeah, it seems like there were actually quite a few of them. And We tried to point them out all along the way, the way the people were responding or some of the language that they used. I mean, it really seemed like they kind of, you know, got it. And uh, there were demons. They definitely got it. They knew who he was. and. Even recently remember we were talking about him walking on the water I went back to look at went back to look at that at that time they called him the son of god So it's it's a little bit weird it's like we've seen it all building up and then somehow at the same time Peter comes out with this this big thing and we're going to see why that's important Now Uh, Let's just say it seems like a big pivotal moment. It is a big pivotal moment because this is the most unambiguous statement that we have along in our story. And so uh, we'll look at the next section and see where that takes us. But what we got to be prepared for is the gospel narratives. It's like they all change right here at this point. And and despite all of the uh, shortcomings, if you want to think of it that way, with Jesus as Messiah at least compared to their expectations he is declared messiah and you might even say by faith i don't know we'll we'll see how that fits in with the rest of the story but there's plenty of story coming right between here and and the the entire story is now turning toward jerusalem and ultimately the cross and again th- there's a lot to happen in between here but but this marks a definite big change in the story but let's see how jesus responds to it
1: Mm-hmm. before we move on to what he says to them um, I guess I'm struggling a little bit thinking of how this particular point within Jesus' story showcases this change more so than what the transfiguration showed Um, to me like they seem I don't know it, when when my... Th- head, thinks of a time where Jesus is sort of transitioning from the two halves of his ministry, the the transfiguration seems like that's the moment for him.
0: Yeah. And it's like the gospel writers anticipated your question. Because what's coming up, maybe not the very, very next section, but what we're coming up to is going to explain that, I think. Okay. So hold on to that and see if we don't answer it. All right. Here, let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses 17 to 19. Uh, He's the only one that has this little bit. So let's get through that. It says this. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Yeah, I know that didn't actually answer your question, but we're going to get there, Samuel. So, I mean, check this out though. Remember back at the uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we had all the Beatitudes. And it had the, the Ashray statements, the blessed, blessed are the poor, or blessed are the, you know, whatever. Same lingo here. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. So Jesus is very pleased. And at first it's like, yeah, okay, but it seems like a lot of people kind of saw that you probably were the Messiah, right? Well, the important detail seems to be here that Peter has gotten this from God, from the Father, from the Spirit. And, and I guess that's to say he isn't just convinced by what he sees or what he might be experiencing in the flesh. Somehow it's something more. Peter has heard from the Father, really heard. And in his spirit, he recognizes Jesus' true spiritual, divine nature and identity. And so, as it turns out, this really is a big, pivotal moment. You know, at least as far as that part goes, recognizing Messiah. And I think we have to say, this, this is actually, just just run this through all of the 2,000 years of the history of, you know, the church. This is something foundational for the entire assembly, all believers everywhere. It's key to the, the whole story, you know, that's the story that ends in eternal life. It's this recognition that God has indeed sent his Messiah, that, that this work has been accomplished. So it's a really, really big deal. Then it gets a little confusing. I just want to say real quick
1: that uh, this example of what Peter has received, I think I alluded to it a couple episodes ago, but there's, within Jewish thought, there's four kind of different strata of wisdom within God's text, and the, the most intimate yet mysterious is called sowed, and that's something that The rabbis allude to, it's like, you can't really explain, I guess, the source other than it was something supernatural given to you by God. And in this case, I think I would say this is sowed from Peter.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Which is... S-O-D, that's how that's spelled. Yeah. And it's something that we not only can experience in some sense... We must that recognition, right? So anyway, it's good, good, good thing, good thing. But uh, then, uh, uh, but still, it gets a little confusing. And this is what I mean. He says, "I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." So we got a couple things going on here. What exactly is the thing that Jesus is going to build his church on? Is it Peter himself? Is Peter that rock, the foundation stone? Or is it what Peter did or experienced, that sort of that spiritual recognition of God's Messiah? Is that the rock, the foundation stone? And I'm going to, I don't know, this sounds like I'm trying to be a politician or something. I'm going to go with both. (laughs) And here's why. I, I think there's truth in both of the viewpoints. Peter really does. In actuality, because we've got the beauty of hindsight, he really does play a foundational role in the building of the church. I mean, you can't act like that isn't so. And so, in some sense, Peter is the rock upon which Christ will build his church. And now, something else happens. I don't know. I'm betting if there are people listening and you've been to church, you know, more than a few times— You've probably heard somebody talk about this whole thing between the Greek words underneath. Peter's name, Petros, and rock, which is another Greek word, Petra. And now, I, I, you know, a lot of cool sermons about it, whatever, and, and I'm sure that they're, they're good. But what's crazy about this is if you, if you step back and you think, well, wait a second, you're saying that they're doing a, a, a play on the Greek words? I thought they were talking Aramaic or Hebrew. I mean, what, what's that all about? It makes it seem like, well, yeah, it couldn't be a play on words. That doesn't even make sense. Well, again, we're reading Greek text. It doesn't mean it didn't start out in Hebrew, okay? But even more than that, and this is crazy, somehow Petra and, and Petros, the, the different forms, had made their way into the Hebrew and Aramaic as borrowed words. And so even if they were walking around talking speaking in Hebrew Aramaic whatever it really could have been a play on words totally realistic that that could have been so it's not just an anachronistic folktale. And just as one example, okay you've probably heard us talk about the Midrash one particular part that one particular part this is the Yalkut Shimoni uh, there's a story that says that God found Abraham to be the Petra to build the world upon, and I didn't insert that in there. The word Petra is actually in there in the midrash. It's crazy. So that's dope. Yeah, it's very crazy. So Jesus, I think on one hand he, you know, he is intending that Peter was to be the sort of the. Let me re say that. I think Jesus is, in a sense, suggesting that Peter himself was to be foundational. However, this whole spiritual recognition of God's Messiah, it's its like the revelation of God's Messiah. Well, that that also is foundational. It is the rock, it's the foundation stone. And I would say, realistically, it is the greater of the two, I think. It's probably the clearer, plainer meaning, but if people are going to argue about it, I think it's better to just go, look, there, there's truth in both. I don't know what the big deal is, right? And also, you know, my point about, I think that the, the spiritual recognition, the revelation of God's Messiah is the more important foundation stone. I think when we continue in the text, I think it's going to make that even more clear, but then there's something else. It's, it, it says, on this rock, I will build my church. And I'm just going to get this out. We'll probably say it more than once in the whole podcast, but this this word church, okay, this is, a, this is kind of a made-up word. And, and, and I, I don't know that it's fair. I would probably go back to like King James Version. It could have been before that or whatever. But it, it's a made-up word, and it just brings a lot of confusion. Uh, because when you hear it, and it doesn't appear anywhere in your Old Testament, it only shows up in the New, you get the sense that it's something new or different. But it's not. It's, it's the assembly of God's people. So wherever you are reading in your Bible and you see the word church, you would probably be a lot better off if you just went ahead and made the little translation and said, oh, that just means assembly. And why is that important? Because it's a continuation of thought from the Old Testament into the New Testament writings. And so if you can sort of emphasize that continuity for yourself, that's going to be good for you. So anyway, had to say that out loud. And then one, one other thing I think, I went, well, actually there's more than one. There's a bunch. But anyway, <laughs> let's, here's another one. Here, okay, so it says... You're Peter on this rock above my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, Samuel. You're a country boy. You're a dad gum country boy. (laughs) Are gates offensive or defensive? I guess it depends on which country boy you ask. (laughs) (laughs) It really depends on what you're doing with your gate, right? They can be, it can be both. See, gates, they they can serve the purpose of keeping things out. So they're defensive. But then on the other side, it could be to keep things in. And that's a little more offensive. You see what I'm saying? So So here's the question, though. How might the gates of hell prevail against the church? What's a gate going to do to prevail? And then, just as another one, remember... That when we see this word hell, uh, we're talking about Hades, which is just a, a Greek word that it, really what we're talking about is sheol, the grave, in its entirety. So it's it's not hell that we have been, you know, sort of created in our modern image, right? It's just the grave. So in this case, it's not even specific, for example, to Gehenna or paradise. It's just the grave, it's it's all of that. And just to give you an idea where this whole, why are we even saying gates of hell? what does this even come from? There was a king in Israel named Hezekiah, got himself in a little trouble at some point. Samuel, I'd like you to, to read, he's like 39 years old when he wrote this, but I'd like you to read from Isaiah chapter 38, verses 10 and 11. I said... In the middle of my days, I
1: must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the
0: inhabitants of the world. So it's pretty obvious the guy thinks he's dying. And he was. Uh, but, you know, the, the, there's a whole lot of story there. You go back and read. but. But listen to what he said right there toward the beginning. It says, I am consigned to the gates of Sheol. It's the exact same phrase, except, of course, it's in Hebrew. It's the same thing. So this is where this is coming from. And, and then, you know, what is the grave? We've talked about this some. It is the place of the dead. It's where your immortal spirit goes after death. And so in this context, again, now we're trying to figure out what's a gate good for. It could keep things out or it could keep things in. A gate could prevail if it prevented the dead from leaving the grave. And what are we talking about? Why would the dead leave the grave? Well, that's returning to life. That's resurrection. That's the end of the story. Well, not really the end end of the story, but it's it's a big, important part. And so, when he says that the gates will not prevail, what he's saying is that death isn't going to win. Death isn't the end of the story. Resurrection will happen. Life will happen. Those gates are not going to prevail. They're not going to win. And so... This idea, the spiritual recognition of Messiah, that revelation, is you know, it's truly seeing and hearing him and living accordingly. It's foundational to being a part of his assembly. You know, the church, we would call it. And so if you are a part of his assembly, you won't just be resurrected, you will be resurrected to Life, eternal life. And so that, that, this whole thing, I mean, it seems like such a, almost an innocent little thing, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But that's what we're talking about in there. And let's see, there's something else. What did I see? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So now we don't, we don't know where all this conversation is going on. But many, many scholars believe that they were, again, somewhere in the vicinity of Mount Hermon, possibly at the base of Mount Hermon. Well, it just so happens that there's this big cliff wall that's right there. And there's a cave. It's, it's located, like, pretty high up on that wall. But water used to pour out of that cave. And I don't mean like a trickle. I mean, it was, it was a... Pretty spectacular kind of thing. A lot of water pouring out. It had to be like a spring or something. But in conjunction with that, it's believed, and you know, I don't know how certain we can be about it, but it's believed that this location was actually referred to as the Gates of Hell. Very interesting. So. All of this thing that we're talking about, we're trying to describe the gates of hell and what this all means and how we're supposed to take the text and all that. It's possible that when this story is happening, when Jesus is actually talking to his disciples, they could have literally been looking at this thing that had been called the gates of hell, Mm -hmm. which uh, we don't know. But true or not, that is one super cool connection. I mean, yeah. Even if it's not true, it's like, oh, but what if it was?
1: That's a cool Mm -hmm. thought, you know? I have uh, another piece of imagery to add to this that could... lay it on us. So, I'm not claiming this as my own. This is another Marty Solomon reference uh, from his Baymah Discipleship uh, podcast. It's episode 119 called The Gates of Hell. Uh, We'll link it in the show notes. But he argues that especially in the verses preceding to say that they were in Caesarea Philippi, which Paul alluded to earlier, like there is definitely some very non-Jewish, unholy, paganistic type society living in that area. yeah. And he takes trips, brings people over to the Middle East, and there apparently are archaeological sites um, in that area that Paul was referencing with that wall and that cave where people among Caesarea Philippi actually built like a pagan temple, like basically like almost attached to the rock or the rock wall in some ways where they carried out, you know, a lot of their gentile, very unholy debauchery type things regarding their practices and Jesus is alluding to, like, whenever he's saying this rock to say, like, I'm building my kingdom, like, even right here, like, the the gate, and, and another thing he argues is that within Jewish thought, they treated that area as, quote-unquote, the gates of hell because of the the culture that these people were living in and everything, and Jesus is arguing to his disciples, and he's continuing that theme whenever he brought up the sign of Jonah which is including the Gentiles in some way to say that like you may not think that I and my father have the power to bring shalom to the chaos in an area that you think is like totally unsavable but even right here like what you're seeing in this pagan temple like my kingdom is going to infiltrate And bring peace and restoration to these people too. And when I heard that, I
0: thought that was really cool as well. Yeah. It's like Frodo going to Mordor and announcing, you know what? I'm going to save it all. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy, man. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and that's, I mean, that's another one to so many ways. And this, it's just a little tiny verse. Stuck right in there, and, and there's so much going on behind the scenes. It's just really, really cool. And, but there's even more. I mean, he gets, after he says that, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys of the kingdom. Here's the thing, Samuel. If If you have a key, does that give you power?
1: I don't know. It feels like a trick question. I mean, in some ways it does, but in some ways it doesn't either. Yeah, well, if you're the only one with the key,
0: just as an example, whatever it is that thing opens up, it's only going to open up for you. I mean, that's a, that's a power. That's a, it's almost like an ownership or an authority. You can do whatever you want with that key and with whatever that key opens. It's kind of cool. But here, he's been given the keys of the kingdom. Well, what do those keys do? Well, they unlock the kingdom, which is, you know, basically saying eternal life and, and even, I would say, the world to come. See, Peter was able to show the way to the kingdom through authorith- authoritative teaching he received from his master, which was Jesus. He could open up that key and... and in a sense, let people in. He could pass it on through discipleship. That's a word that's going to come up. But so just like when they were sent out, remember when he sent out the 12 as apostles and he gave them authority and we said, yeah, it's, I mean, they were going on his behalf. It's it's like they were him in a sense. But that was just on that single limited mission. Well, This is, it's not quite as explicit here, but since we know a little bit more about the coming story, they're going to take on that same kind of role permanently. They have the keys to the kingdom, and they're going to be able to open it up for others to enter in. And then it adds this other little bit about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So so Peter gets these keys, and I mean... You know, reasonably, I think we have to think that belongs to Peter and the other apostles and elders, whatever. But what this is doing, and this is, this is very strange lingo to us, but it's very, very common lingo in first century Judaism. What it means is it gives them the ability to decide what things are permitted, and that would be loosed and what things are prohibited that means they're bound so you know we might think of things go a little further along in the story uh the the idea that gentiles don't need to be circumcised to become and and to become jewish okay they actually made that decision they 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 bound and loosed things and there you go maybe uh, Gentiles don't need to obey all of the food laws. Just a you know a couple little specifics, one specific ones you can read about that. And so the thing is, this is actually setting them up to say that they are comparable to the existing Sanhedrin, the judges, the priests, etc. But they're going to be that authority for the sort of the subset, the assembly of believers. So this is this is huge. Again, just a little verse, don't it? But it's huge. It even allows them to decide if we could say it this way, who's in and who's out. And and what I mean by that is that for example, they decided that the gentiles were in and they even decided that they were in by faith. But that's not the same as like there wasn't anybody deciding hey you're saved or you're not saved it wasn't that it was more like you know who's who's invited or who's allowed or you know something of that nature but anyway you can read about more of that stuff just look at acts 15 that'll talk about some of that and also this authority this idea of binding and loosing and whether we're talking about sanhedrin judges priests etc or we're talking about these guys right here this is never this this authority this power, it's never going to include adding to Torah or taking away from Torah, the law. It's only about interpreting within it. So again, the idea of Gentiles being included or things about the laws or whatever, we're going to show this all goes back to what's already in the Torah. There was nothing new there. And just one final note uh, this whole, the, the lingo, binding and loosing, all this stuff, there's a lot of people out there that try to make this verse, and uh, I guess other verses, it's like it's about casting out demons or spiritual warfare, whatever, that kind of stuff. Now, you know, I, I don't know, I, can can we use those words and talk about that? Sure, whatever, I guess that's not completely wrong, you know, there's not like an absolute impossible connection, or Whatever. But that is definitely not what we are talking about right here. Not at all. When we're talking about binding and loosing, we're talking about permitting and prohibiting. It's 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 a legal kind of thing. Gotcha. And Samuel, I wasn't going to do it, but I can't help myself. We've been talking about Peter and the keys and... Man, when you were growing up, did you get all kinds of Peter at the Pearly Gates jokes? I think I've heard of a
1: handful in my years, but none pop out specifically.
0: Yeah. I kind of feel like if we don't tell a joke right here, that will kind of be, I don't know, branded as stodgy. Yeah, I mean, you are the dad in this podcast, so
1: (laughs) dad jokes are appropriate.
0: All right. Well, here's the thing. There's this guy and he's waiting in line at the pearly gates and you know, he's watching and he's seeing some of the people are, are there, they're allowed in this is good news, but he's seeing some others who are being sent off to hell. Right. And so it's finally his turn. He gets up there with St. Peter and St. Peter, you know, he's looking over some things and he's like, Hmm, your, uh, your resume sure is light. Uh, Can you think of anything you've done of reasonable merit? And the guy, I mean, he's confident. He goes, well, well, I can think of one thing. I was on a trip through South Dakota. And I came upon this gang of bikers threatening a young woman. And I told them to leave her alone. But they wouldn't listen. So I picked the biggest and meanest looking one of them all. And I smacked him in the face. I kicked his bike over and I ripped the nose ring out. I threw it on the ground and then I yelled, now back off or you're all next. Well, St. Peter was pretty impressed. and He goes, wow, I, okay, I I don't see anything about that here. When did this happen? And the guy goes, oh, it was just a couple of minutes ago. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, what are you going to do? You got to do the Peter at the pearly gates joke. Yeah. It's and a then rite of passage. That's right. And now we got to go on. So we're in Matthew chapter 16. We're doing verses 20 through 23. This, uh, this lines up with Mark chapter 8, verses 30 to 33, and Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. And I'm going to read from Matthew. It says this Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it's at this point, Samuel, that you ought to be feeling like your question's getting answered a little bit. Now we see the the big turn toward Jerusalem and all that. So it's, it's happening. Okay, but still in here. All right. So uh, some of the words he uses, strictly charged and commanded. So it's so funny. We finally get this clear, unambiguous understanding that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And what does he say, Samuel? Not a word. <laughs> Tell no one. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a broken record. But think about it. Neither Rome nor any of the Jewish leadership is going to be supportive. In fact, this is going to be a big problem. And so, the cone of silence must continue, at least as much as possible. Now, obviously, it's only delaying the inevitable, but apparently, in Jesus' eyes, delaying is preferred over not delaying. So, uh, Jesus, he's using strong words. I mean, it's command, it's order. Uh, He really doesn't want them to say anything. And Mark and Luke they actually use the word for rebuke so jesus is laying it on him don't tell anybody but then it says that he began to show them what was to come details of what was to come and i mean this is a lot of info he's talking about jerusalem he's talking about the suffering and the death and the resurrection on the third day and i mean it, it, it says there's no real symbolism or imagery or metaphor. He just laid it out as plain as can be. And this, as far as we know, this is the first that they're hearing of it. And, and you got to imagine, Samuel, if you were there, you've been hanging out with this guy going through all this. You, you come to the realization that he's the Messiah. And then he goes, yeah. So anyway... I'm going to go suffer and die in Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, how is that going to make you feel? What's going to be run through your head? It's got to be bad news, yeah? Yeah. It's probably not what you've been hoping that the the coming of Messiah is going to be like, right? They they they'd grown to love him? Uh, they I'm sure they naturally they they felt protective. I mean, that's a lot of what you're hearing coming out of Peter. And I'm going to throw this one in there. I, I even have to wonder if in any of them, some of them, something, all of a sudden they're going, oh, no, this, this can't be. I mean, that's not what su- Messiah is supposed to be about. Are we following a crazy guy? And I know we've, we've offered that as a possibility in another story earlier, but imagine you're them. It has to be, f- it has to be fueling
1: their wrestlings of doubt, like that they were already experiencing to some degree.
0: Oh yeah, it has to be. It's just, it's just really, really hard. And so again, we see Peter displaying leadership. Uh, he takes Jesus aside, and and he brings all of those thoughts and feelings right out into the open. Peter rebukes Jesus. Now think about that. Peter has. A real revelation from God that this guy is God's Messiah. And he still takes him aside and rebukes him. <laughs> this
1: guy is an emotional roller coaster.
0: Yeah. That Peter, you know what? He's got chutzpah. Yes, he does. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. Now, um, the thing is, though, normally rebuke, you, you tend to, to think that that has something to do with some sort of correction. And I don't know, I mean, you can see that in this case, but I think it's a lot more obviously just an, an emotional outburst. He He's not really offering anything more than, no way, that's not how things are supposed to go down, stop talking like this, Right. But Jesus, you know, we say it, he's meek and mild, but you know what? He wasn't weak. Jesus rebu- rebukes Peter right back, and he tells him, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, Samuel, but I'd be feeling like I just got bopped in the nose or something, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty rough. Peter, just to be clear, just, I don't know, some people might think this, Peter had not become suddenly possessed or oppressed by a demon or anything he wasn't he wasn't like satan himself it wasn't anything like that but peter is unwittingly playing the same role and something else the wording here well okay uh, we'll talk about that in a second he he says Get behind me, Satan. And what's important about that is if you look at the words, the Greek words, what it actually says is, Be gone behind me, Satan. Or go away behind me, Satan. Very, very interesting. And I'm going to show you why that's important. But, so so Jesus says this, and you know, to be fair, Peter's the one who started it. But the last time that Jesus had said something very similar to this phrase was to Satan himself after the 40-day the temptation stuff. Remember he's 40 days in the wilderness and he comes back and he gets tempted? Read that, Samuel. It's just a snippet from Matthew 4.10. Be gone, Satan. Yeah. Be gone, Satan. It's the same word for Satan. Well, here they just say get, but it's more like be gone behind me, Satan. So it's just amazing. I mean, this, this is a real connection back to that temptation story and the role that Peter is playing. And so he, Jesus tells him he's a hindrance. You're a hindrance to me. Poor Peter. He'd just been called a rock and now he's a stumbling stone or a rock of (laughs) offense, How quickly and easily we may fall. And then he tells Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Poor Peter. He'd just been praised for actually really hearing, being in tune with God. But Peter kind of gets overwhelmed by himself, his own thoughts, his own desires, his own expectations. It wasn't that he didn't know God's will. Jesus had been telling him. He just wasn't prioritizing God's will above his own. And honestly, Samuel, is that not the human story? For sure. Yeah, it's the story that's been around since the garden, Adam and Eve. We gotta, we have to learn. That's part of being saved, being born again, being a Christian, being a disciple of the Christ, whatever you want to call it. Part of it, like the most important part, is prioritizing God's will above your own. It's reversing the garden story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you see it, how quickly and easily we may fall. For sure. Um, I wanted to add
1: just a, another detail that could help people with this get-behind-me-Satan phrase. Um, if people are somehow struggling with the aspect that somehow Jesus is incorporating literally Satan in this part we need to keep in mind that that Hebrew word actually it's it's not so much a name for the devil or whatever as it is a descriptor like meaning a title yeah like the enemy or the adversary and so the accuser whenever you have that context with what jesus is saying to me it makes more sense with how he says it. it is like peter what you're saying right now is is going contrary to my mission right here to 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 make it to jerusalem and complete this thing you are being an adversary yeah to this cause like stop saying this stuff so yeah um whenever I heard that for the first time, like, it, I don't know, it opened the door to to see that interaction between the two of them. And, again, let me do this thing I've always been doing in these episodes, giving disciples credit when it's available to them, like, whenever possible. Let's give Peter some credit. Like, I think, especially Jesus, whenever he, like, at the end of the story... When peter doesn't seem to be kind of interacting with his disciples after his denial and he gets kind of reinstated, I think it's testament to peter's willingness to make bold moves and make mistakes rather than being passive and not doing anything at all like yeah. to to some effect like you you have to think that peter was i mean he he had to i mean just not only was he seeing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, but this was his rabbi, this was his teacher, like closer in a relationship intimacy-wise than a son and a father in that day. So whenever he's hearing Jesus talk about these things, about his death and suffering, like I'm sure Peter's had to have at least, you know, a a sea salt motivation is like, I can't let this happen to my rabbi, like I, I don't want it to happen, like I love him, and so like that has to be in his mind too. So I don't okay. know. I'm just I'm just adding to the plate of all the things we should be visualizing with all of these interactions between Jesus and
0: particular disciples. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And when you're talking about Peter, uh, it actually was starting to remind me of Jacob. That same thing where you know Jacob wasn't perfect, but he was willing to act. He was willing to do stuff, and Peter, he's sort of in that mold. It's kind of good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Samuel, this is normally the spot where I might be leaning toward cutting off the podcast, but you know what? I'm going to finish it. We may go a little long. We'll try not to, but whatever. We're going to, because this is going to sew up, uh, like, it'll be a good stopping point if we can go ahead. So I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Godspeed, soldier. There you go. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 9-1. And then Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. I'm going to read from Mark. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's pretty awesome. Uh, There was a little bit uh, in uh, Matthew's, in his verse 27. I just wanted to read that. I thought thought it added a little. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done." People like to read over verses like that, so I thought I'd highlight it, and we'll talk about it. So, first things first, if anyone would come after me, well, Jesus is telling his disciples, or the crowds, or both, I mean, it kind of depends on which gospel you're reading there, uh, if they choose, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, if they set their will to come after Jesus, and, and I'm going to restate that too. If, if you're saying you want to be his disciple, follow his lead, well, then you must be willing to risk even a cross. And now, <laughs> this is tricky because Jesus hasn't mentioned, any, mentioned anything about dying on a cross. He talked about suffering, he talked about dying, okay, but we don't know about the cross thing yet. And so. At the very least, in the generic sense, we could say they've got to be willing to lay their life down. But notice, this is an everyday thing. Every single day, you have to do that and, and follow in his footsteps, which is, it's going to sound weird, but it is a radical imitation of him. It is every thought, every word, every deed is, is to imitate him. Now, again, we don't really know. Does Jesus know his specific end? Does he know that he's headed for the cross? We don't know. It could be, I mean, the the cross was a, a super common symbol of death. And so it could be he was just grabbing, you know, a really obvious representation of death, you know, from this time period. Or it could be that he really knows what's going on. We can't tell. But... If you're going to follow him, it's going to cost you a lot. And and when we talk about losing, uh, laying down your life, this is important too. If you're looking at that as, oh, well, you know, if I came down to it, yeah, I'd take a bullet. Or if somebody said, deny Christ, or I'm going to, you know, burn you, it's like, okay, good, burn me. Well, yeah, maybe that's a part of it. But what we're talking about is laying down your life. Every single day, whoever it is you think you are, whatever it is, your own will and desire and everything else is, you're willing to lay that down and pick up his will and his life instead. So this is, this is an all-consuming call, if anyone would come after me. That's what he's talking about. And then they get in this weird bit about, hey, you know, if you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you save it, Whatever. So (laughs) Peter, he'd just been scolded for, you know, thinking like a man as opposed to thinking like God. Uh, And Jesus now is going to kind of elaborate on what this God thinking looks like. So the kingdom, which is the good news that we're all looking toward, the kingdom and the world to come, to us, they kind of appear upside down from everything that we know in this world. Now, the truth behind that is that they're actually the thing that is right side up. We're the ones who are in the upside down world, but you get what I'm saying. If we try to protect or save or nurture any of the things of this life, then we're going to forfeit eternal life. If you try to save this life, you will lose eternal life. On the other side... If instead we're willing to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, meaning we, you know, forfeit this life, well, then we will attain eternal life. So if you lose your life, lose this life, then you will save your eternal one. And, you know, it may feel counterintuitive, or you might be going, yeah, whatever, makes perfect sense. The point is we got to grab a hold of it and run with it. And I just want to point out really
1: quickly this that does not mean that we're trying to advocate for punishing the physical side of ourselves with this temporal life or not prioritizing the sanctity of life given by God I think correct me if I'm wrong Paul it's 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 more about those aspects of like self-preservation a mindset of scarcity one that's not being willing to be gracious and forgiving and kind, all those attributes that represent God that we have in some ways an inherent ability to express, we've been blinded to it in some ways by sin and death and everything but it's like are you, the things of this life is are you putting others' needs slash God's needs before your own self-gratification in, yeah. in the life that you have.
0: Yeah, in the end, it is it is definitely a life lived fully, but it's lived fully submitted to him. So, yeah, it's not, it's not you know, buffeting my flesh, or any of that, uh, whatever, do whatever God calls you to, but, you know, that's not what it's talking about here. So, yeah, good, good point, Samuel. And then he, he continues on, he talks about Uh, You know, there's nothing of this world or of this life that can match the value of your soul, which is another way of saying, you know, eternal life. That's what it's referring to, really. But in your pursuit of the things of this world, you can't escape it. You're going to neglect the truly important things of God, and that's ultimately going to lead to losing your soul because you were pursuing the wrong things. Your, Your focus, your attention was in the wrong place. Even, and here's the point, even if you could gain all that could be gained in this world, there's still not enough value there to exchange for your soul. It's it's a truly useless pursuit. And of course, we know, it's what everybody does everywhere, but it's, honestly, it's just dumb. We must learn to set our minds on the things of God. And, I mean, I keep saying this is good news. Thankfully, God's given us his Torah. What is contained within there is like the, 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 the instructions for how to do this right. He, and, and then he didn't just give us his Torah as in like the first five books. He also gave us Jesus, his life, his words, which is the same thing just in flesh. We've got what we need to do it right. We just need to actually grab hold. He does another one of those, uh, boy, this measure for measure thing. Whoever is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him, right? So we've talked about it concerning judgment, right? How you judge is the way you'll be judged. Condemnation, forgiveness. If, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you, that kind of stuff. And now it's about being ashamed. If you feel shamed or regretful or pitiful or reproachful or disgraced or cheapened or humiliated, in any way by being a disciple of the Christ, well, he's going to feel the same way toward you. If you don't want anyone to know that you're associated with Jesus, he won't want anyone to know he's associated with you, which is just kind of a different way of saying you actually won't be associated. That's how that works out. And we've already discussed uh, Matthew 10.33, but Samuel, read that a little bit. But whoever denies me before men, I
1: also will deny... Before my father who
0: is in heaven. Yeah. This is, it's very, very consistent. And again, it's that measure for measure as just kind of a a principle or philosophy. And then we see it worked out in these these, uh, multiple ways. Now, I did want to say this. Uh, When you say, you know, whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my father, all this stuff. If, if somehow in your life, you find yourself in this situation where your life is on the line, either like at the moment or in a general sense around, and it could be at any moment, however that works, we're not trying to suggest, hey, no matter what you do, just keep saying Jesus, you know, whatever, get yourself killed. Okay, listen, you need to let God lead you in that. There are times I believe when you actually may be led into martyrdom. That is possible. It is equally possible that God may want you to operate in a different way. Maybe you're you're you know being stealth about this or that or whatever and it it also is for God's purposes. There isn't a single answer for all But it's a general principle. And understand that God, he sees the heart. He knows what's going on inside you. So even if you said, well, I'm not going to deny Jesus. Go ahead and burn me. He's still going to know if you were ashamed of him in your own heart. So don't let God be with you and guide you in these situations. What's that like, Paul? I don't know. I'm not you. I'm not in your situation. I'm just saying all of us have to work with him. Don't yeah. be so hard with you know formulas,
1: yeah, and i I hate to jump in to make us go even longer, but I think it's hopefully someone will connect with this i I feel that this kind of pressure, like whenever maybe there's this previous history within like evangelical upbringing, it's like if I'm not cold calling sharing the gospel with someone (laughs) then that means that this verse applies to me that like i'm ashamed of like being on god's team and being a follower and like therefore god's going to be ashamed of me but like oftentimes when i'm thinking about that and i'm experiencing that pressure it's like i feel like if i do this interaction it's actually Potentially going to steer someone farther away from being interested in the things of God because of how out of left field that it is. There has been no relationship formed first in order to have a connection to talk about those things. It's just I'm I'm hopefully bringing this up so that people can experience some grace and an exhale with all this stuff that it, it it doesn't have to feel so sales pitchy. Right, with living your
0: life for God and letting the gospel be
1: your banner in your life.
0: Yeah, there's some some messed up aspects of evangelism, not all of it, but yeah, stuff like you're talking about Samuel. It, yeah, it brings a weird pressure, and it's just not right. Just know, God is seeing your heart. You be you be truly honest with yourself about what's going on in you and live and act accordingly and all that. Just just you'll be good. You'll be good. Yeah. And not the the worldly statement be true to yourself. It's be true to God's standards. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. It's good. And that I mean and yeah, okay. So here's another one. Uh, one of the thing that part that I read in Matthew that he's going to repay each port each person according to what he's done. Okay. I mean, think about this. This is the judgment. It is the whole point of the judgment. You are not judged on whether you said you believed or not. That, that doesn't work. Belief is determined by action. God determines, rightly, what you truly believe by how it manifests in your daily life. Life, you will be judged by what you do, because that is the true indicator of what you believe. That's why we keep pushing this idea that when we say belief or we say faith, it's it's a like a two sided coin. It is not just faith; it's also faithfulness. You got to have the action that accompanies, because otherwise, it's it's just you know. I mean, it's right up there with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. So whatever. Anyway, that little bit, and then now oh, this little bit at the end is really hard. And and I, I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, you're not gonna be satisfied when I'm done. It says that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom. This is just a difficulty, Samuel. First of all, what exactly does Jesus mean? Now, I know we've talked about before, we've got when we talk about the kingdom, we've said, well, there's kind of like a not yet kingdom. That's the one that actually comes in its fullness. There's a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth and all that. Okay, well, we know it's not that. Because that hasn't come yet. I don't I don't know how Jesus could possibly have meant that. That's a little I don't know. It's a little weird. And then uh we've also mentioned the transfer transfigurations coming up. Well, maybe he's talking about that. I mean You kind of see Jesus, you know, in his glory, all this. Uh, Maybe, Uh, but that's a, man, that's a big stretch. So that falls a little closer in the probably not category. But then, you know, if we talked about the not yet kingdom, we also talked about the now kingdom. That's the one where, you know, it's like a foretaste of the kingdom. We can actually bring the kingdom into the here and now so that not only we may experience it, but others may see and experience it. That's sort of like, that also is like a part of evangelism, if you want to think of it that way. Well, remember, once Jesus dies and all that, there's sort of a, a now kind of kingdom explosion in the book of Acts. We'll read all about that one day. Well, maybe that's what he's talking about. We'll see the kingdom coming in its power. Well, you know, maybe. I mean, that one actually is pretty good, and it'd be really, really good If it wasn't for Matthew's language, Matthew added a little phrase in there that really throws us off. It says, until they see the Son of Man coming. And that just sounds so much like his return that it makes this, you know, it doesn't really apply so much. So that's kind of weird. And then, then another idea that people bring up is that, well, okay, but remember when John was... uh, on the island of patmos and and he receives this revelation he gets this revelation well part of that revelation is that he he sees the literal kingdom coming into being and so uh, you could say that before john died he saw the kingdom coming in its fullness he saw the son of man coming and the whole thing it all fits well, if that fulfills what Jesus is talking about right here, it just barely does. I mean, you know, it doesn't feel super fulfilling. <laughs> so this whole little bit about they are not going to taste death, and, uh, some here will not taste death until they see the kingdom, I, that that is a difficulty. I've given you some ideas. Maybe some people have some better ideas. Maybe some of these speak to you. I don't know. But... And and now I feel like we can be done, but not yet because I have a (laughs) lay it on us. (laughs) Uh,
1: Could it potentially, I mean, of course, I have no idea. I'm just thinking, speculating, hypothesizing. Could it mean with him saying some will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom that this is alluding to? the disciples interacting with Jesus after his resurrection in terms of like what does the kingdom I guess begin the establishment of with reality and life on earth and what's to come after that. It's, it's resurrection. Like there are going to be those who are going to be gifted to experience the kingdom by being resurrected from the dead and Jesus is like the very first one, the first fruit of that happening. And so, I mean, we've already said before that all of this stuff that Jesus has been doing within his ministry is an example of, like, the kingdom has been inaugurated now, but it's not yet. But, like, how much more could you say that it has been officially established by the first human being right. experiencing that resurrection literally, physically and that like in some way he has crossed the threshold from his Messiah son of Joseph role and moved into his Messiah son of David especially the Mark version saying like uh, the see the kingdom of God after has come with power like once Jesus crosses that veil it's like okay like now we know that he has the authority and it's been given to him so yeah I don't know
0: that just came to mind too yeah, it's another good one. Yeah, and I mean, I would add it into the list, uh, but all of them, and maybe it's just me, but they leave me feeling unsatisfied. It's just a difficulty, and I hate that because I, you know me, I want to be able to explain it all, but sometimes you just can't. Yeah. Smarter people maybe can. There's <laughs> plenty of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, anything else, Samuel? No, I think... We, we got to let them go. Yeah, I think we, uh, you know, probably some of them are up past their bedtime, whatever, we need to. <laughs> <please>. <laughs> All right, we're out of here. Okie dokie. Oh!
1: Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com and if you'd like to get hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com and until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Talk to you all again soon.